Merry Christmas. It's great to be with you on this Sunday before Christmas. I'm looking forward next week to joining the Step Closer community for their Christmas service. I get the opportunity several times a year to go and teach the Step Closer group or the R&R group on Friday nights and just an awesome community, an awesome opportunity for me. And so this time I'm just uh, going to be one of the people uh, sitting down there enjoying the service and worshiping. So uh, I'm looking forward to that myself. So last week, uh, Dan encouraged us to find more margin in our lives. This was very easy for me to do in August and September because I was on sabbatical. So when you're on sabbatical and you don't have a job, or I have a job, I'm coming back to a job, but I didn't at that point, uh, wasn't working actively. I had a lot of time to think and to pray and reflect. And I went for a walk one day and I was thinking and I was praying and, and reflecting. And I was struck by this thought, which was very emotional for me. God has given me so much. God has given me so much. And uh, I was very moved at that moment. I don't know where that came from. Maybe it was from the Spirit just giving that to me. And uh, the next uh, thought that occurred to me was a question. Based on what's been given to me, what remains for me to do? That was my question. I asked that question. What remains for me to do? Well, if uh, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been given a lot. You've been given God's Son, especially we celebrate that at Christmas time. But maybe the question is, if that's true, if you've been given so much, what remains for you to do? Now, the Apostle Paul addresses this question in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, two chapters that are much overlooked. But in the middle of that, or should I say toward the beginning of those two chapters, there is this uh, profound expression of incarnational theology. And uh, this is a Christmas story in one verse. And this is our verse for today. Let's look at it. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Again, it's a Christmas story in one jam-packed sentence. Well, let's think about this a little bit. Let's try to understand what Paul is talking about. He's speaking to this uh, church in Corinth, probably a couple dozen people, and he says, uh, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is something they, they already know, they've already been taught, and uh, maybe you know it also. Maybe you don't know it, but even if you do know it, why would Paul be saying to something, to people saying this to people who already know it? It's because they need to appreciate it. It's because they need to understand it at a deeper level. And even if we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we need to know it at a different level. So uh, how does Paul identify Jesus here? Our Lord and Christ. Now, Lord, these are two very high titles. Lord would be used for ruler oftentimes. The title Lord was often used for God himself. And indeed, that's what Paul is talking about here. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, but also uses the title Christ or Messiah, which was the Jewish title that was given to the ultimate and final Jewish king who is going to come and set everything right. So Jesus is Lord and Christ. He is God himself, and he is also the Messiah. Look at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Grace. How do we understand grace? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. On one level, you could look at it this way. Grace is God doing for us, God accomplishing for us what we cannot accomplish for ourselves. God, grace is God accomplishing for us what we cannot accomplish for ourselves. But that's a rather abstract definition. And what Paul does here is he gets more personal. He gets more concrete in a personal way wrapping grace around a person, wrapping grace around the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Paul say? Our Lord Jesus Christ was once rich. Well, what does that mean? It has to mean that he was rich in heaven. He was equal with God, meaning he was God himself. He enjoyed the glory that comes with being God. He was the son of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. He enjoyed that intimate fellowship. He was rich in that sense. And yet he became poor. It has to mean that he became human. So he gave all of that up in heaven, being God in heaven, to become human on earth. He became subject to all manner of human frailties. Look at uh, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we can hardly understand, we can hardly begin to understand and imagine what this must have been like for the Son of God to leave all of that to come down here for all of this. So our series, our Advent series, Things of Earth, culminates in God himself who created the earth and became a person of earth. Now we have to ask the question, well, how did he become human? In the most interesting and fascinating and you might say degrading of ways. Did he enter this world as a fully formed adult? No. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. He entered the world as a vulnerable human embryo in the womb of an, un an unwed woman, not the safest of places then or now. He became one of us by entering the body of one of us. He's a king. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. Was he born in the palace of kings? No. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. He was a king. Did he live a life of privilege in the manner befitting kings? No. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Did he die as an old man after having lived a long and satisfying life, surrounded by loved ones? No. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Did his friends stand by him in his agony? In his agony? No. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Did his heavenly father comfort him in his time of need? No, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A rags to riches story, this is not. On the contrary, it's a riches to rags story. And we have to ask the question, why? Why did he who was rich become poor? Why did he who was God in heaven become human on earth? Three words, for your sake. Do you understand that? Now, the your here is plural, but obviously includes all the yous, which means it includes you. And we might think that, again, he's writing to a group of 24 people, something like that. We don't know exactly how many, but each of them is supposed to see themselves in this. We're supposed to see ourselves in this. We're supposed to see ourselves as motivation for what our Lord did in becoming human. Mozart's Requiem includes this line, remember, merciful Jesus, that I am the cause of your journey. After all that he went through for your sake, how could he ever forget? You see, once our Lord shows up in a manger, which is really a a feeding trough for animals, once he shows up there, you know that there, there are no lengths that he wouldn't go to, no depths that he wouldn't sink to in his wild pursuit of us. That's one of the things the Christmas story means. If he shows up there, he's going to show up anywhere. He's going to show up anywhere for your sake. So if our Lord, who was rich, became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich, that means what? It means that you must have at one point been poor. And indeed, you were. Indeed, we were all poor in a spiritual sense. Listen to what Jesus says at the beginning of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying is that the poor in spirit are in a good place. But really, when you think about it, it's not good to be poor in spirit. It's good to be rich in spirit. But everybody's poor in spirit apart from Christ. But now that Christ has come, now that our Lord has come, he has made the kingdom of God accessible so that even the poor in, the spirit, poor in spirit now are in a good place. They're blessed because the king has come and they have the opportunity then to become rich. So what did our Lord do? He looked upon our poverty-stricken state, and that's all of us apart from Christ. He looked upon our poverty-stricken state, and he decided to do something about it. He became human. The king clothes himself as a beggar. He renounces his throne in order to win the hand of his beloved. His beloved, that's you for your sake. So he makes us rich. Through his poverty, he makes us rich. Now, what does that mean? Now, you might remember the scene in It's a Wonderful Life. A lot of us have seen that movie. Some of you might be watching it again at Christmas time. And George Bailey has fallen on the hard times. He's lost a lot of money. And Clarence the angel is sent to try to show George 
uh, you know, what a great life he has. And George doesn't believe it. He's on the verge of suicide because he's lost a whole lot of money. He's going to go to jail. So he wants to kill himself. And, uh, and Clarence says, well, you know, we don't, we don't use money in heaven. And George says, well, comes in pretty handy down here, bub. And indeed, yes, money can come in pretty handy down here. But that's not what Paul is talking about. Jesus did not come born in a feed trough, crucified on a cross in order to move us to a higher tax bracket. That's not what it's about. He came to make us spiritually rich. He came to accomplish what we cannot accomplish for ourselves. That's the grace of God. We cannot make ourselves spiritually rich. You might make yourself physically rich, but not spiritually rich. For that, you need the grace of God. You need the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You need our Lord to become a human and to die on a cross. So then how do we benefit from his poverty? It is by his poverty that we become rich. How do we appropriate that? We do so by faith. And that's what Jesus says right at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. His first words in the Gospel of Mark are these, repent and believe in the Gospel. That is, turn away from everything else that you think is doing it for you in life and turn to God through believing in Jesus Christ, giving your allegiance to him, inviting him into your heart, and then you receive forgiveness of sins. And of course, it is not about what we can do for God, as if we could ever be good enough for God. Even trying to be good enough for God is sin. We need to repent of that and then receive the grace of God, which is seen in our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have not yet put your faith in the Lord Jesus, this is a great time to do, do so. Christmas time. So then if you do repent and believe and you believe in Christ, you give your life to him, then what? Paul says this in Romans chapter 10, verse 12. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So we become rich. The Lord bestows his riches on us when we call on him in faith. So... There's no middle class here. You're either rich or you're poor. You're rich or you're poor. You are in spiritual poverty or you are swimming in spiritual riches. And if you believe in Jesus, you are exceedingly rich. You are filthy rich. You are stinking rich. You are swimming in it. And that's one of the things Paul wants to do is open our minds and our hearts so that we can see how rich we actually are and to live out of that. Amen. So how is it then that we are rich? I could go on and on about this, obviously. The scriptures are full of descriptions about how we are spiritually rich, but it begins with the gift of the Holy Spirit. If we are rich in spirit, we have to have the Holy Spirit. And it is Jesus then who gives us the Holy Spirit. So in my little story then, as we were working through these verses, we ended with the crucifixion. But is that the end of the story of Jesus's life? No. We have Good Friday, but we also have Easter. Jesus rises from the dead. Is that the end of the story? No. 
He ascends to heaven. He, he goes back to where he came from in the first place, now also as man, as both God and man. And from his heavenly throne, then he gives his Holy Spirit, he pours out his Holy Spirit on all those who believe in him, and those who believe in him then receive the Spirit in their hearts. What does the Spirit do for us? Again, can't go into all the details, but let me just highlight one particular aspect of what the Spirit does for us to make us rich. The Spirit makes life an adventure. The Spirit makes life a divine adventure. And not only an adventure, but an eternal adventure. And this is key. It's not just a few years here on earth. If you're lucky, you might get to 100 or something like that. It's not just that. It's forever. It's eternal. It's an eternal event, adventure following Jesus through all eternity, ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth. Look at the book of Acts. After the Spirit comes in the book of Acts, look at followers of Jesus. They are flying by the seat of their pants. They are following the Spirit everywhere. The Spirit is opening doors, sometimes closing doors. It's this exciting adventure. Each day is an adventure with the Spirit. It's a rich way to live. Indeed, we are wealthy people. What will the Spirit do today? Jesus has given us the Spirit. What will the Spirit of Jesus do today? Surely at some point, he is gonna take your breath away with something that you could not have expected. It might be today. It might be tomorrow. It might be the next day. But surely at some point, the Spirit is gonna take your breath away and show you things you never could have dreamed. What an adventure. What a way to live. My father died a year and a half ago, and I inherited this old car of his, a 1996 Nissan with 200,000 miles on it. So I didn't know what to do with this car. I, I felt sort of burdened by it. I parked it in front of our house, and I didn't drive it very much. And I, dra I was dragging my heels on what to do about it. We, by the way, we encouraged my dad to get rid of this car and, and trade it in for something new or do something with it. Just don't leave it. We didn't say don't leave it to us, but we did say get a new, get a new car. And he said, I don't want to buy a car that's going to outlive me. So he didn't do that. And he left the car to me. So I had to decide what to do with it. So I was dragging my heels for a year and a half or so. And, um, and one day I come home and I see this ticket that has been affixed to the windshield. Well, I had failed to register the car in time. So once I got that ticket, I decided, okay, I got to get into action here. What do I do about this? This Nissan, this 1996 Nissan, it is a thing of earth. It came from the earth, composed of parts of the earth and put together and somehow is still lasting after all of these years and all these miles. What do I do with this thing of earth? I began to pray about it. Do I trade it in? Do I sell it? Do I donate it? I don't know. But it's parked in front of my house and I need to do something with it. I began to pray about it. Let's think about the context of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We have this profound expression of incarnational theology, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Where does that appear? It appears in two chapters in which Paul is encouraging this particular church to finish taking up the collection for the poor church in Jerusalem. That's what those two chapters are all about. They are seemingly mundane chapters. They are much overlooked. In the middle of all of this, 
you have one of the most profound expressions of incarnational theology that we have in all the scriptures. N.T. Wright, who is a scholar, offers this observation. When Jesus, for the sake of us all, became poor, we became rich. Now, when people who follow him are ready to put their resources at his disposal, the world and the church may benefit, not only from the actual money, but from the fact that when the Jesus pattern of dying and rising, of riches to poverty to riches is acted out, the power of the gospel is let loose afresh in the world and the results will be incalculable. So back a few months ago when I was walking and musing and thinking and, uh, and uh, I, I came to the, the realization that I had been given so much and I asked myself the question or the question was given to me, what remains for me to do? I came up with a one word answer or maybe the spirit gave me the answer. What remains for me to do? Give. If I've been given so much, what remains for me to do but to give to others? And then I immediately thought of what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 10, verse eight. You received without paying, give without pay. Or as other translations put it, freely you received, freely give. Freely you have received, freely give. Give what? Give to whom? Give when? I don't always know. But maybe the Spirit can help me. So I had this car, this Nissan. 1996 Nissan with 200,000 miles on it. I got this ticket. I paid the fine. I come home another day. There was another piece of paper affixed to the windshield. I didn't even want to look at it. The piece of paper sat there for two, three days. Finally, I picked it up and looked at it. I thought it was going to be a ticket. It wasn't. It was a note. It was a note from somebody named Cody. And he left his phone number. And he says, if you are interested in selling your car, give me a call. Oh, okay. I just started praying about what to do with this car. And now I get this note. So, okay, I make a phone call. Cody answers the phone. I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect this young voice. I don't know how old he was, but he was probably no more than 25 years old. I told him about the car. He expressed interest in it. We set a time to meet. And so uh, we set this time to meet, and it's not Cody who shows up. It's his father and his mother show up. Oh, and by the way, when I was talking to Cody on the phone about this whole thing, when he, uh, when he hung up the phone, he said, God bless. So God bless. Okay, so uh, Cody doesn't show up, but his father and mother do. And I started talking to his father, Tony, about Cody and his father says, yeah, well, Cody's my son. He's 16 years old, 16 years old. And I'm thinking to myself, what 16-year-old kid goes around putting notes on cars and, and, then, and then talks to some old guy on the phone who's describing, who wants to sell him a car and says, okay, God bless. What's the, what 16-year-old what boy does this? So I was impressed with the young man. So we started, I started talking, talking to, about the car to Tony and we got talking and he said, yeah, we really like old cars. I'm mechanical, and so uh, we're interested in the car. And so I looked up what the value of the car was. So the value of the car, if I sold it to a private party, was $1,500. 
If I traded it in, it was $550. So in that moment, as I was talking to Tony and really sensing who Cody was, I said, tell you what, Tony, the car is yours for $550. He just looked at me, shocked, stuck out his hand, stuck out his hand and said, deal. And that was it. And he told me that his son was a strong believer. All this, this family was a family of believers. In fact, this, uh, the, the, the wife said, would you pray? I said, I'm a pastor to church. Would you pray for my daughter? So we had a little prayer meeting right there on the sidewalk in addition to selling the car. So I sold him the car for $550. And so freely you receive, freely give. I didn't exactly give the car away, but I gave a $950 discount But here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to encourage this young man. That's what I really wanted to do. I didn't want to save him $1,000. I wanted to encourage him in his faith. So I texted Cody back. And I said, I gave your, I gave your dad a great price on the car because I had a good sense about you. And because you finished our phone call by saying, God bless. So I say to you, God bless. Drive safe and take it slow. He texted me back a heart emoji. <laughs> it seemed fitting to give or to sell my father's car to a 16-year-old boy because when I was a 16-year-old boy, my father taught me how to drive in one of his cars. Do you want to see that car? There it is. <laughs> 1975, Pepperdine University, Malibu, California. I'm just about to start my freshman year. My father takes that photo of his 1960 Triumph TR3, which he let me drive when I was at college. But that's not the end of the story. You see, I have a daughter. I have two daughters, actually, and they've learned to drive. And one of them is Christina, and she's our oldest daughter. And she actually chose to go to school at Pepperdine University. So Karen and I dropped her off last, there, last year there for her freshman year. And I, now the father, took the photo, and here it is. Same spot, different car, different grant, 46 years later. Life is an adventure. Life is a spirit-infused, spirit-inspired adventure. My goodness, the spirit is creative. What a way to live. What a rich life. I couldn't have done any of this. I couldn't have expected this. I couldn't have accomplished this. But Jesus, my Lord Jesus Christ has given me the spirit who does all this stuff, who brings Cody my way, who gives me an opportunity to encourage Cody. And then I see the, the full circle story with my daughter and the car that I let her drive because my father let me drive a car when I went to school. God has given us so much. What remains for us to do 
Give. Give to give what? Give to whom? Give when? I don't know. Watch for opportunities. Watch for the opportunities that the Spirit creates, and he will create them. You have been given so much. Watch for opportunities to give. Give, and the power of the gospel will be set free again in this world. The power of the gospel, fresh, let loose in the world, and the results will be incalculable. What has God given us? First of all, and most importantly, he has given us his son, who then gives us the spirit to make us rich. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Oh, come, let us adore him. Will you stand, please? Our Heavenly Father, when we come to that manger, to that feed trough, and we see that baby lying there, we recognize that there are no lengths that you will not go to to reach us in your wild and crazy love. So we see that, we praise your name. We see that, we worship you. We see that, we open our hearts to give worship to you and as you lead us to give to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus.